Thanks, man. Well, good morning. I am delighted to be here at the Freedom Center. If ever a church was well-named, unbelievable. I looked around and just saw people celebrating what the Lord is doing in their life, and ever since uh, Pastor Jim and I discussed this, I've been really, really looking forward to it, and I am just pleased as all get out to be your geek friend, <laughs> and you are my one and only cool friend, so it works out. It works out well. How many of you know you have a pretty amazing pastor? He's the... Yeah, I mean, if you're going to do it, do it. If you're going to applaud your pastor, applaud your pastor. I mean, come on. Well, I am just uh, pleased to be here as part of your series, and uh, I have four things that I need to accomplish in just the next little bit. The first thing I want to do is just tell you just a little bit about what I do at North Point Bible College. That'll just take a minute. And then I'm here today to talk to you a little bit about the reliability of Scripture. You're going to be studying Scripture for the next little bit, but how many know unless you feel convinced that this is God's revelation, it's authoritative, it's trustworthy, it doesn't do a whole lot of good to be studying it. It doesn't give us a whole lot of confidence to apply. So today, we're going to pray that the Holy Spirit is going to do something both in our minds and in our hearts that is going to reconfirm for us that God has willed to speak to us. He's spoken to us authoritatively in a way we can believe and we can trust. And we're going to do that with three different little ideas. The first, I want to convince you just in a couple of minutes that Scripture is authoritative and important, but maybe not in the ways that we have thought about it. I want to maybe encourage us to maybe shift and challenge us just a little bit on that. And then I want to talk to us about the historical reliability of Scripture, the transmission of manuscripts. I'm like, yeah, that sounds awesome. That's going to be amazing. And then I'm going to talk to you just for a couple of minutes about intellectual doubt. That is a subject that is dear and passionate to me. It's been a part of my life. For some of us, that is a part of our lives. And I believe the Lord is going to give just extraordinary grace. As I was praying, as I was driving here last night, and I just felt like the Lord was laying on my heart that there are people here this morning and during this weekend that intellectual doubt, questions about Scripture, questions about your faith, about the interaction of suffering in your faith, have, uh, have just been a part of your DNA as a Christian, and that the Lord is going to speak some grace and some life to us this weekend and help us continue on our journey. So we're going to try to accomplish those few things. Uh, North Point Bible College, in addition to being the uh, husband of my beloved, we have three boys who are 15, 13, and 9 years old. We have a Pueblin milk snake named Cisco, a guinea pig named Millie, and an old English sheepdog named Herbert whose IQ is 2. And, uh, but he's adorable, which is great. In addition to that, I get to run North Point Bible College. And uh, our, our objective is just simple. We're in Grand Rapids. We're a two-day full-time program. And our objective is just really simple. We believe that if we're going to look at the next generation, we say, go change the world, that it is immoral and unethical to give them $100,000 and $200,000 in debt to equip them to do it. You can say amen to that. And so Grand Rapids First, which I serve on staff there, a great partner church and run the Bible college, partnered together. Grand Rapids First provides literally millions of dollars in resources to equip the school to offer education at a price that our students can afford so that our students in the first eight years that we've been there, our graduates have saved over $3 million against national averages in student debt. That's awesome. And so I would just encourage you if, you, if you feel that you're called to ministry, if you feel like you're interested in psychology or counseling, we have an incredibly innovative program that is both psychology and theology together. 65% of people who are first-generation Christians experience faith in Christ when they're at the bottom of the barrel. And not all the people who are at the bottom of the barrel come to the church. Some of them go to the counselor. How many believe we should be training people to be there, ready to meet them and equip them? So if you're interested in that, or you say, I want to do one year, I don't know where I'm headed, or I'm going to another school, get my gen ed credits and an environment that's going to build my faith, 
faith with some of the finest people on planet Earth. Nicole and Gabe are out there after the service to be glad to just give you some information. And uh, we'd just be glad to help you in any way we can, okay? So if you just pray with me for just a moment, and we'll get into talking about Scripture. Father, we just bless you this morning. I bless this place, this pastoral team, this leadership. And I just thank you, Lord. I look over and see the young people just going after you and serving you and loving you, singing their testimonies about what you've already done in their life. And we see those who have been serving the Lord for 40, 50, 60 years, hands in the air. And I just thank you for a house where freedom has been here for every socioeconomic status, every age, every culture, that you are here meeting them. And I thank you for the great leadership. Pray that today would be strategic in some small way in the larger plan you have been accomplishing in this great place. We ask in Jesus' name. And everybody said... Amen. Fantastic. So three things, as I said, that I want to chat with you about. The first is that I want to talk about the reliability of Scripture and how it's perhaps not important for the exact thing that we have thought it is important for. Very important, critical, we'll underscore that, but it's important that we understand why it is important that we believe in the reliability of Scripture. We've got this first slide, and it just says this, Christ is the source and object of our faith, and you can insert it there, not, not Scripture. Scripture shapes our faith. So Christ is the object and source of our faith. He is the thing that gives us faith, that brings supernatural life to our belief in him. Scripture shapes it. This is actually really important. I think there are a lot of people, and I would be shocked if there aren't some of us here this morning, that we really struggle in our faith journey. In fact, there may be people here this morning who you have yet to say yes to Jesus because you're going, I have questions I don't have answers to. I don't understand how the scripture works. I don't understand how this particular piece of theology works. Or some of us are having conversations, and I love the DNA of this church. You're getting together out in your community just radically loving people with Jesus, but how many know that sometimes there can be this temptation to get into a conversation with someone who doesn't know Christ, and we're like, okay, you've got to know Christ. Now, here's the very first thing. You've got to believe the earth is 6,000 years old because it says it in the Bible. Evolution isn't true. There was a whale who actually swallowed a person, and we get caught up in all of these kinds of details. How many have ever done that, and you look back, and you are shocked and ashamed at yourself? Just me? I need to come to this church, Pastor Jim. I would be a better Christian. We do these things where we get a little bit obsessed, but what I want to maybe just walk through for a second is that's a bit backward. We don't believe in God because we believe in the Bible. We believe in the Bible because we have had an encounter with God. And that is the way that that works. Let me just walk you through the Gospel of John for just a second to demonstrate how this works out. So if you look at John the Baptist, he, again, is a person who knows the background of the Scripture but yet doesn't have faith in God until he sees Christ as a divine encounter. Heaven is opened up. Dove comes down. This is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. Bam, he has faith, right? Nathaniel, you probably know this story if you've been a Christ follower for any time. He's sitting over underneath a tree and Jesus kind of goes all creepy on him. He's like, Nathaniel, I know where you were. I know what you were thinking and I know what you're going to do with the rest of your life. And Nathaniel's like, man, you are freaking me out. But I want to follow you. Has an encounter with Christ, becomes a Christ follower. Then we have uh, the disciples at the wedding of Canaan where Jesus turns uh, grapes into non-alcoholic grape juice, or water into non-alcoholic grape juice, which is great. And it says that he manifests his glory. His disciples' faith is built. Then we have the woman at Samaria. That's awkward. She is a great example of what we're talking about. She wants to have a theological argument with Jesus about text. And Jesus says, I'm sorry, that's not going to work because I know who you are, I know your past, I know your sin, I know your faults, and I know your future, by the way. And she has an encounter with God, and that's what actually brings her to real faith. You say, well, that's Jesus. That's a little bit different than the ministry that we're a part of. Well, let's forward over to the book of Acts. We see the lame man get healed. He's the first person to come to faith in the book of Acts. And he has a miraculous encounter with God and leads to faith in Christ. Simon has a miraculous encounter with Christ, comes to faith. The Ethiopian eunuch, how would you like to be remembered by the city you are from and your least favorite physical quality about yourself? If I were the Ethiopian eunuch reading this, I'd be like, my name is Jim, man. My name is Jim, you know? 
Sorry, I didn't mean to make Jim the Ethiopian eunuch. I apologize for that. It would just be like me. You know, you're talking about, remember that guy we had, the Grand Rapidian Baldi that spoke? You know, don't do that, right? Anyway, so the Ethiopian eunuch, he's riding along his miraculous encounter. He comes to faith. Saul, now Paul, he has a miraculous encounter, comes to faith. In none of these instances was the source of the person's faith a right belief about Scripture. That's actually really important, and I think actually very liberating. We need to be in a place where we can come to ourselves and say, okay, I can have some questions, I can have some things I'm not sure about, but that does not change the fact that I have had a living, life-giving encounter with a resurrected Christ. I mean, the person who's been resurrected from the dead, healed from their diseases, delivered from their sicknesses, delivered from their bondages, just really can have some other questions and still know that Jesus is on the throne. Is that cool? Fantastic. So I think the reason this happened, I just want to give you a quick example. And if Pastor Jim, if you disagree with this, just get up next week and say, JP's a heretic and a crackpot. Don't agree with anything he says. And he's totally right, okay? Um, if you have been in the faith world at all, you probably know this passage. Why don't you pull it up there for me? And let's see if you can fill in the blank. This is Romans chapter 10. See if you can fill in the blank with me. It says, so faith comes by hearing and hearing from the word of, ah, see, we have been duped. The King James Version says that hearing comes by the word of God, but actually in the Greek manuscripts, it is actually not theos, which would be God. It is Christos, which is Christ. So faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. What is the word of Christ? But the gospel proclaimed with the authenticating signs of the radical love of the community and the signs and miracles that follow. So our faith is not based on scripture. Our faith is based on a living encounter with a resurrected Christ who brings your and my souls to life based on an encounter with his presence, okay? So again, Pastor Jim, you disagree with that. Just next week, throw me under the bus. That's great. Phenomenal. So those are the two witnesses that we have in the Christian community. We have the faith, or we have the, uh, the uh, resurrection power of Jesus that shows miracles, and we have the radical love of the community, both things which are incredible values here. But I get it. When we talk about Scripture, even though I'm saying our faith is not built on that, we need Scripture then, therefore, to inform our faith once we have it. Scripture then takes our faith and it says, here's what your faith should do. Here's what your faith should look like. Here's how your faith should be shaped and formed. Here's the bedrock of it. And for that, I get it. We need Scripture to be reliable. We need the manuscripts to be real. We need there to be some trustworthiness that we have what the original authors actually said. So that leads us to our second where we'll spend the most of our time this morning, and that is that Scripture is absolutely trustworthy historically and has been preserved reliably. At Grand Rapids First a few years ago, we did a series called Man on the Street. And we did some interviews in our community, and we went around with a video camera. For those who've been in Grand Rapids, it's like, it's like Mecca, right? There's a church on every corner. We're the highest church, evangelical church population per capita in the country, uh, home of many Bible colleges and seminaries. And we went on the, on the street, and we asked people questions, and one of them was about Scripture. We asked them, you know, what do you think about the Bible? Just open-ended question. And the three most sort of typical responses we got was, one, I think it's just written by people. Um, yes, the Bible is written by people. We'll address that in just a moment. Moment, fair enough. This, I was like, very good. Uh, the second uh, observation that we got, and people had often heard this. They had heard that Scripture perhaps wasn't historically anchored, that there were things in the Bible that weren't historically true. We'll address that in just a moment. And probably the most common response was actually the last one, and that people questioned whether after thousands and thousands of years of people copying over the manuscripts, remember we don't have digital files, we don't have copy machines, there are just people sitting around writing copies of the Bible, that if things literally hadn't changed so much, that there was no way of knowing whether we actually had what the original authors had written, that this was actually a fairly common idea. We'll talk about how that got popularized in just a moment. So I want to take those in order just very very briefly. The first is the Bible was written by humans. The answer to that is yes. Okay, we can move on. Now, it is written by humans. You know it has the name of human authors in your Bible, right? You have Moses, you have Paul, you have John, and so on and so forth. In fact, there are not only human authors, there are human editors involved. If you look at the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, those are written by Moses. 
And it actually tells us that he wrote down everything the Lord said. But if we forward over later in there, it, you probably have read this passage where it actually says, Moses says that Moses was the humblest man on earth. Now, I don't know about you, I feel like that might be a little bit of a stretch to believe that Moses wrote that about himself, but even if I grant that to you, if we go a little bit further in the text, Moses gives a firsthand detailed account of his own funeral. If you can pull that off, I'm impressed. What does that let us know? There are other people involved with this process. Moses wrote the original document, but we believe that God stepped into the mess of human authorship, human editorship, and actually did something miraculous and crafted the 100% reliable word of God. For some people, that's the real struggle because they don't understand that God is always doing 100% human and 100% divine things at the same time. When God says to Abraham, Abraham, I'm gonna make a great nation out of you. And he doesn't just all of a sudden, poof, turn around, and all of a sudden there are billions of people living in his house. He actually has to do things like, I don't know, have a wife and treat her well so that he might be able to, I don't know, have conjugal relationships with her. I'm glad, I think at that point, Abraham is glad that he's a part of the process. And he's able to have children, and they have children, and those children, I'll be, they probably look like Abraham, and he's gotta raise them and nurture them in godly ways. He's a part of the plan. Or if we forward over to Matthew chapter 16, the Lord says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. No provision no exclusions, I'm going to do that. But yet you and I still need to come here this morning, be equipped, be prepared, pray, grow in our faith to be a part of that. Scripture is exactly the same way. It's people who are listening to God, doing their best to hear from God. In Corinthians, Paul, while he's writing the Bible, literally says, as he's writing the Bible, you know, I'm gonna answer that question, I think I have the mind of God on this. That is so amazing. Paul doesn't even know he's writing the Bible. But in the midst of that, God is doing something perfect, just like he always does through human agency. But I think the subtext of that question is really, if humans wrote it, then humans probably got involved with it and dirtied it and changed it and made it so that it doesn't have integrity and doesn't have historical integrity and has things that aren't true. And I think that's the sort of subtext of that, of that question, which leads us to that second observation. Is the Bible actually historically accurate? Is it something that I can trust from a historical perspective? Now, my first academic passion when I became a Christian, which was when I was 19, who was making allusion to the fact that um, I, have a, I have a past, and we won't talk about that now. If you want to talk about it afterwards, um, that's fantastic. I'd love to tell you what the Lord's done in my life. But uh, when I became 19, became a Christian, and I've just always been a geek, so I immediately started reading books. Church history was my first passion. One thing I figured out very quickly is that people have always been attacking the reliability of Scripture, from, the, from literally from day one. They did it in the Old Testament to the Jews, and in the New Testament, they continued to do it to the early Christians, so that's nothing new that we're going through. But it was the, the advantage that we have in our time is that we have all kinds of incredible archaeology that's taken place over the course of the last 120 years. Now, almost all historians will tell you one of the most significant ancient research books we have is the Bible. And I'll give you an amazing quote that you can use for yourself if you're talking to a friend uh, about that in just a moment. But over the last 120 years or so, what has happened is all this list of people, how many have read the Old Testament and you're like, there's all these people mentioned that you cannot pronounce. You know those people? The funny thing about those is a bunch of those are not mentioned in any other book of the ancient world. And so that led critics to be like, well, wait a minute. If this guy was in this book, how come he's not mentioned in this book? And if he's in this book, how come he's not mentioned in this place? Now, I want to give you one of those that's a big deal. Now, about 50 of those over the last 120 years that all of the critics that didn't exist, we've actually discovered on monuments that exist in the middle of the East. Now, how many of you have ever heard of a guy named King David? You've heard of him? Now, King David's a big deal in the Bible, right? He wrote a bunch of the Psalms. He's the king of Israel. And from him, Jesus Christ is supposed to be descended so that he's the Messiah. Many of you may not know this, but until just recently, there was zero physical archaeological evidence that King David was a real guy. 
And this was a very, very common talking point for people who are attacking the reliability of Scripture. They're like, okay, I can understand the guy with the name I can't pronounce in the second chapter of Numbers, but I cannot understand there not being any archaeological evidence for King David. Well, in 1993, and you can go ahead and pull up this wonderful uh, picture of the triangular basalt, black basalt uh, piece of stone. In 1993, they were doing research in, uh, in, the, in a tel- site called Tel Dan, and all be, they pull up, this is 9th century BC site that they were researching, so we're talking about 100 to 150 years after David was king, and that tells the story, this particular stone glyph does, of a battle between an Aramean king, and you can see it sort of highlighted there in white, and King David, the king of the Israelites. And all of a sudden, there it goes. Again, another card sort of falling, and I'll actually show you a couple more that I think are fascinating, because another idea that comes up with this is the idea of the, the scriptures, the actual manuscripts themselves being changed. And let me kind of explain this. How many have ever played the game of telephone? You've played this game, right? So I know that I know, because I know us as humans, how this works. If I were to this morning say on one end, you know, I have a praise report, so-and-so has been healed. Um, By the time it gets to the last person, they've not only been healed, you know, their car has been uh, raised from the dead, and uh, their chickens are giving birth to to double yokers and everything else. I know how this works with us Christians. We're the testimony improvement center is the way that that we work. And so I, I understand why people would say, because the oldest documents that we had up until just a few years ago for the entire Old Testament dated from 1000 A.D. Now, keeping in mind that most of the Old Testament was written about 1,700 plus years before that, the idea was, if the game of telephone is true, now magnify that over the course of 1,700 plus years by people who are religiously motivated. And the idea that we're going to get a text that is the same 1,700 years later as the one that was originally written, almost inconceivable. And on the surface, that actually makes sense. So that has been one of those questions that we've had to wrangle with and deal with until the late 1940s. Anybody know what happened in the late 1940s? 1940s that was super important. Dead Sea Scrolls at Qumran. And we pulled up, go ahead and pull up the picture of that next slide there. It is the three scrolls in a row. This is what is actually known as the Great Isaiah Scroll. And it dates from somewhere around 100 to 300 BC. We found this in a cave. It was a part of a library of a community of probably Essenes that John the Baptist belonged to. And it was their entire sort of theological library. This is almost the entire book of Isaiah. Now, keep in mind, this is somewhere between 1100 and 13 years old than the previous older manuscript that we have. Now, if the critics are right, we should read this manuscript and it should be wildly, wildly different than the one that we now use for translation as our earliest particular document. Is that clear to everybody? Everybody understand what I'm saying? So they began to do translation of this and their minds were absolutely blown. There is literally not one significant difference other than punctuation, slight misspellings, things like that. There is literally not one significant difference that makes any difference to the meaning of text in the entire book of Isaiah in this document that was discovered 11 to 1300 years older. Now let me show you one other. You can pull up that one, the black and white slide. This one is actually is fairly recently. It happened about 18 months ago. This slide, you can see the penny there. So it's a very, very small piece of manuscript. This was also discovered at Qumran. It's a piece of a document from Leviticus. And uh, Leviticus, the was uh, written even before that. And this particular document couldn't be translated because it was wrapped up, had been burned and charred. And so they actually ended up doing it with a CT scan and then unrolling it digitally. That's amazing, isn't it? So the New York Times reported on this. And the New York Times, you gotta love it when the New York Times affirms the authority of scripture. The New York Times said that this document, which is now almost a thousand years older, this one dates from around 50 AD, They literally said that this particular document demonstrates the incredible accuracy with which the Bible has been preserved throughout the ages. Yeah, you can clap for that. 
Now, if you could do me a favor, pull up the Bert Ehrman, Bart Ehrman quote. How many have heard the name Bart Ehrman, by the way? Okay, I'm a little surprised by that. If you are on a college campus or you're dealing with people uh, who have been through college campuses recently, they will have heard his name. Bart Ehrman is a PhD from Princeton. He is the professor of religious studies at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And um, he is the author of a book called Misquoting Jesus, which argues against the authority of scripture. It's very, very influential. And he says this, not only do we not have the originals, we don't have the first copies of the originals, we don't even have the copies of the copies of the originals, or the copies of the cop. okay, we get it, Bart, right? Or the copies of the copies of the originals. What we have are copies made later, much later in most instances. There are copies made by many centuries later, and these copies all differ from one another in many thousands of places. Now, what I would just simply encourage you is the information that I just gave you demonstrates that while this is actually true, that the authority of Scripture and the transmission of, of, that, uh, of that text is 100% solid and secure. Now, I will give you one resource. For those of you that are interested in this kind of an idea, there is a great debate. It is on YouTube. You can watch it for free. And it is a debate between Bart Ehrman and David Wallace. We use it at the college. It's about an hour and a half long. And he will go through in great detail, uh, for those of you who are that way minded, uh, the, the sustainability of the manuscripts, the sustainability of the documents. And it is overwhelmingly a favor of the fact that we have exactly the same document for all intents and purposes that was written by the original authors and now is transmitted uh, to us as the people of God. But here's the deal, that I think no matter what I do, and for those of us who are wired as doubters, I think this is true, no matter what I do, how many know, once you answer one intellectual question, another one pops up. It's like a game of Pop Goes the Weasel. And this is true not only for people who aren't in the faith yet, because they, they can be, but this is true often for those of us who are in the faith. We have one question, then we have another question, we have another question. And the fact is, is that there's an unlimited number of questions that we can ask about our faith. And what I want to encourage us with is that initial contention that our faith really, though, as much as this is all true, should not be grounded on this. We can't, waste, we can't ground our infinite faith on finite information. We have to ground our, our infinite faith on an infinite experience with God. And so I want to take just a couple minutes and talk about uh, doubt and how we might wrangle with that for those of us that uh, maybe that's been a struggle. So third point is this. Intellectual doubt, for some, is a normal part of the Christian life. Now, there are some of you that are like my wife. My wife got saved in the womb, was baptized, was born in the baptismal, and cooed in tongues. That's her testimony. <laughs> and we had our first child, and our first child is me. He has 100% of my DNA. I know that's not medically possible, but it is happening. And at three years old, we were doing our bedtime devotions with our three-year-old son, and we're praying, and he says, Mom, I just have one question. How do we know there's a God? And my poor dear wife, who has never doubted anything in her entire life, was baptized when she was like minutes old in real faith, she looks at me and she goes, JP, we are raising an atheist. You know, she was looking under his hair for like the signs of the beast, all kinds of crazy stuff. And I said, no, baby, don't worry about it. He is just my child. I have always been a doubter. I came to faith when I was 19 years old. And from the very first moment, I had questions about the integrity of scripture. I had questions about how suffering interacts with Christian faith. And that has been just a part of my journey. So this is near and dear to me. And what I want to encourage you with is that this can actually be a normal part of the Christian faith and actually can be a normal part of some people's faith journey because of their gifts and because of their experiences. Now, let me tell you a story real quick about the Gospel of John. And I love the Gospel of John because of this. In John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, John does something the rest of the Gospel writers don't do. He tells us why we're writing. Don't you wish all the Bible would do that? Here's why I'm writing. 
That would be great. Here's why I'm writing. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John 20, 30 through, uh, 30 through 31. Now, let me give you a little bit of background on this, tell you why this is written this way, tell you two stories, and we'll be done. So the Gospel of John is written late in the first century, and it is written exactly why it says that God's people might believe because they were actually struggling in their faith. We know this historically. Late in the first century, the churches that John was responsible for were in modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, and they were being persecuted for their faith. And also, it was the first generation where most of the people didn't know anyone who had ever seen the physical Christ, and miracles were on the decline. So all the things that would normally attest that Jesus was still doing what he was doing, the miracles and the presence of God, those were decreasing, and life was getting hard. How many know when life gets hard, you start asking questions? And this was a crisis in the late first century. And John says, I've got a problem. I have to encourage the faith. Now, there were two things that were happening. The one was that there were followers who were then being persecuted. And you know what? Not every believer who raised their hand and say, I'll give my life for Jesus, was able to do it when the moment came. And the question was, what do we do with those people? Do we restore them? And then the second group of people was there were people who were like, I don't know if the Christian faith is true. I don't know if it's right. I'm waffling in my faith. And the question was, what do we do with them? Do we invite them into the community? Do we have them as part of the community? Or do we say, no, you're a bad Christian, <laughs> and we put them to the side, let us know when you got everything figured out? Which of those do we do? And funnily enough, there are two character stories in John's gospel that address both of those issues. The first, if you've been a Jesus follower for any time, you know it's the story of Peter. We meet Peter. And Peter, his, his story follows an arc. Peter's awesome, right? Peter sees Christ and he's like, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He's the first guy to get it. But then Peter, and by the way, if you're like me, Peter encourages you because he's always writing uh, checks with his mouth that his life can't cash. I will die for you, Jesus. And then in the face of the persecution of a 14-year-old girl, he buckles. He buckles. And then we have, so we have Peter's awesome, Peter blows it by not being able to be persecuted, exactly the situation that the church is going through, and then Jesus answers the question for us, John answers the question for us, no, we don't bail those, those people to the side, we go to them and we restore them, just as Jesus restored Peter. Question answered. The guy who answers the second question is the guy who gets a bad rap a bunch of times and his name is Thomas. Doubting Thomas. And Thomas gets introduced exactly the same way as Peter. He comes on the scene, and go back and read the story, and Thomas, Jesus says, I'm gonna go to Jerusalem, and I'm probably gonna die. And Thomas says, all right, everybody pony up, we're dying in Jerusalem. He's the only guy, and he rallies the troops to go die. He's just like Peter, he gets it, he's committed. In fact, people who are really committed are sometimes the people who struggle with doubt the most, because they understand what's at stake, and they wanna make sure they're right. Then he gets to the death and resurrection of Christ, and Christ dies, and Thomas has a misunderstanding about the kingdom. He believes that the kingdom is gonna come on earth, and when Jesus dies, it blows all of his theology to bits. And he is in a theological crisis, and he's like, that's it, I can't believe. And he not only says, not only if I see Jesus raised from the dead, but you know the famous lines, he says, I wanna touch him, I wanna put my hands in the holes before I will dare trust my faith with that guy again. I thought things were going one way, he bailed on me, no way, I mean, no way. And again, Jesus shows up and supernaturally reignites his faith. Now, you probably immediately get the problem that this document is written to late first century Christians. Jesus is no longer around, and the answer in both of those situations was a supernatural encounter with God. It wasn't a reaffirmation about the apologetics of the Bible. It wasn't a reaffirmation about the historicity of Christ. 
It was a genuine encounter with the living, resurrected Christ that brought faith and hope. Tucked in the middle of John's gospel are, I think, two of the most important chapters, three of the most important chapters in the Bible, John 14 through 16. And in those passages, Jesus makes the case that all the stuff that I'm doing is going to continue to happen through the work of the Holy Spirit after I leave. If you can pull up those passages from John chapter 16, that'd be great. John chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Go ahead and pull up the next text, please. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine, and he will declare it to you. I love the song that we sang, Reckless Love. And I love the heart and DNA of this church. And while you're spending the time over the summer talking about Scripture, and like I said, watch the debate. It's phenomenal. Scripture is 100% reliable, 100% secure. I am, I am a doubter by nature. And I have absolute confidence in saying the textual transmission of the Bible, Loctite. The historicity of the Bible, great. But none of those things will give us faith. They don't bring faith. Christ brings faith. A few, probably a few months ago, I was uh, speaking at church. My wife and I do a lot of uh, marriage conferences, and I was doing a Saturday night conference on sex, which was a ton of fun, and a Sunday morning on, uh, on marriage. And church in a small community, great church, about 100 folks there, they're growing, people are coming to Christ. And uh, I just want to let you know a little secret if you haven't figured it out already. I am not the most spiritual person on the planet. Like those people, you know, you meet those people and they're just like always in the press. <laughs> I'm not that guy. God is continually playing a game of come here boy with me, okay? I'm like, Charlie. <laughs> we have the same physique too, me and Charlie. That's, that's good. And um, we're worshiping and God just put this burden on my heart that, that there was someone in this church. The church I serve at is like, you know, 3,500 people. If you say someone's having marriage problems, like you're going to be right. But this wasn't that. This was the Lord. And I, I felt like the Lord was saying, JP, there's someone here. And like in the next two or three days, it is mission critical. If they don't figure it out in the next two or three days, their marriage is over. And I'm like, that's, that's pretty heavy, Lord. And then I felt like the Lord said, and this is where I started to feel like a televangelist. No offense to televangelists. But he said, her shirt is green. I'm like, I, am, I literally said, Lord, I'm not saying that. <laughs> so I get up to preach. And I said, you know, and I'm, I'm like giving myself all kinds of caveats and all, all kinds of ways out in case I'm wrong. And I'm like, you know, just, I just before I start, here's what I felt like the Lord said. I felt like there's somebody here and, and just this weekend, like, I don't know, you know, it's just it for you guys. Like, it's all on the line right now. There's something happening. It's out of crisis. And I didn't say the green thing. The Lord's like, say green. So I'm like, not going to do it. And I know, I'm naughty. I don't know what to tell you. And I continued to preach. I preached the message. And to be honest, at the end of the message, kind of forgot about it. Gave a response. And uh, I look over, and there's the pastor. And there's this beautiful couple. Her, of course, in green. Tears just sobbing. Him full, ugly crying. He's one of these manly men, you know. But he's in full, ugly cry. 
And I go over there, they're praying with the pastor. I said, what happened? And they said, our marriage was literally ready to end. We live on the other side of the state. We had friends over in this community. They told us that we could come and stay for the weekend and give it one last try to save our marriage. Somebody invited us to come to church this morning, and God's changing our lives. Now, the story gets better and better. Because I'm then preaching at another church not too long later, and I don't tell that story very often, and for whatever reason, again, I don't mean to make it sound spiritual, I just wanted to tell the story. I'm just like, I just want to tell the story. I'm talking about marriage. I tell the story. Service ends. I look up at the front, and there's over the pastor, and there's this wonderful couple. And ugly crying. It's a thing. And this couple, she hasn't been to church since she's 12. He's never been to to a church in his entire life. He's an atheist, up at the front of the church, bawling his eyes out. I said, what's going on? He said, I don't know, man. I don't even believe in God. I said, well, what happened? He said, well, our, he said, our marriage has just been so bad. We got married and we loved each other, but we don't know how to do this thing. Our marriage has fallen apart. And she said, let's go to church. And he said, I'm just desperate enough to try anything. Let's go to church. And we drove around until we thought we could find a church. And we pulled into this church. And you're preaching about marriage. And God is just wrecking our lives. She gets saved. She gets baptized. They're baptized following Jesus. And I say all that to say that if, if you are here and you're a Christian, that's not just for unbelievers. If you are here and you're a Christian and you're saying, I just struggle with this doubt thing, the answer is not reading another thousand apologetics books. The answer, and do that by all means, get your faith secure and your intellect secure, but you will just have another question after that. The answer isn't getting all of the answers. You can never have all the answers. If we could have all the answers to God, he wouldn't be God. Do not be ashamed to just get down on your knees and say, God, you know, I just need you to show me who you are again. And in just a minute, I'm a nothing up my sleeves guy. I will never do anything to you that that is not clear and transparent. In just a minute, I'm gonna ask everybody to close their eyes. And here's what I'm gonna do. I'm not gonna ask for any public response, but here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna ask this question. I'm gonna say, if you're here and intellectual doubt with your Christianity has been a part of your journey, I'm gonna ask you to be super bold and just raise your hand just for a second. Let me tell you why I'm asking you to do that. Because as you raise your hand, I'm just gonna say, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And sometimes it's awful cool to know that there's a bunch of people around us who are walking this journey with us. And I know you're that kind of place. And the second thing I'm gonna do, it's gonna be super quick, so I'm just gonna ask you to say, I'm here. I don't even know if I believe in this God thing, but I'm just willing. I'm willing to just slip up my hand super quick. Nobody's gonna call you forward and say, if God would show himself to me, I'd, I'd follow. I'd respond to that. I'd, I'd love that. I'd love for God to know that God's love, God's grace, what y'all are singing about is real for me. So do me a favor, bow your heads for just a moment. And if that first one is you, you say, I am a, I, I'm a Christian, I, I, I know Jesus, I'm following Jesus, but I'm gonna be honest, whether it's, it's something about life that's made it hard for me to believe in God, whether it's intellectual questions, but doubt, doubt about whether Christianity is real, whether the Bible's real, whether all that kind of stuff, that's just been a part of my journey. I'm gonna count to three, and on the count of three, I want you to just be super bold, put your hand up and down, quick, just up, down, just like that, okay, super quick. I'm gonna count to three, one, two, three. Go ahead and slide up your hands. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh my goodness, hands all over the place. I'm not even counting, thank you. And I want you to know, I'm gonna pray in just a moment that God is gonna grace you, and I believe this morning, God's gonna start something new, a wonderful new journey with you, where you're not gonna be ashamed to say, God, I just need to know you. That's not because you're weak, that's not because you're bad, that's because you're a human and you're trying to understand God, and God's gonna let you know who he is, and he's gonna confirm your faith through the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. He's gonna do some awesome stuff confirming who he is. 
And if you're here this morning, you say, I'm not a, I'm not a Christ follower. Uh, I, I got dragged here by someone. I've been being dragged here. I don't even know about this stuff. But I'll tell you, if God were to show me that he was real, I'd be responsive to that. I'm going to count to three. You're just going to slip up your hand super fast. One, two, three. Slip that hand up. Yeah, anyone? Thank you very much. Anyone else? Anyone else? Awesome. I'm going to pray. Pastor Jim's going to come up, and we're going to be done. Father, the thing that I love about you is that song we sang. There's no mountain you won't climb up. No shadow of doubt that you won't light up. That my friends who, who just slipped up their hand and said, Father, I, I don't know about you, but if you were to speak to me, if I were to know some way that you were real, if you were to just, if you were to do that for me because you love me, I'm not asking you to prove yourself. Just, just help me know that you're real. I would respond to that. God, would you do something supernatural? God, I'm asking you that one of these red cards will be filled out by my friend next week. And Father, for my friends who slipped up their hands and said, you know, I'm a Christ follower, but that's been a part of my journey. Jesus, I just ask you, you'd do super natural stuff. You've done it for me. You've done it for them before. Maybe they're even ashamed because they feel like they have to ask again. God, I'm, 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 it's me. I'm doubting again. But help them see, God, the reason they're doubting is because they care. They want to know. They want to be sure. You're proud of them and you love them. And I pray that you would supernaturally do things that blow their mind. They may still not be able to get it with their head. But in their hearts, they would know that they know that they know that they know. I ask you to do all those things in Jesus' wonderful name. Would you say amen with me? Amen. Pastor Jim. from trying to take notes that fast. I have not heard syllables connected that quickly since combat, you know, where like machine guns are going off and all that kind of stuff. So thank you, Dr. Dorsey, for uh, that. And you did it in 35 minutes. My introductions are 40 minutes long. So the only way I can finish a sermon in 35 minutes is my opening point starts with, and in conclusion. So um, Dr. Dorsey is going to stand at the, the North Point booth, I think, after, and maybe have some other questions. What about this or what about that? He'd love to spend some time with you, I'm sure. I'm going to head back to that guest room, which is that lit room right in the back. Go grab your kids if you have kids with you today. Come and join me for a little while. I'd love to hear your story. And uh, maybe some other conversations can come up as well. God bless you, church. Next week, I just want to give you kind of the, the cue coming out that one of the great um, orators of the generation that's behind mine is going to be here, and uh, you don't want to miss this guy. He's about nine feet tall. He has feet the size of uh, flippers. I mean, he's he's a again. Just it's funny. A lot of us have this this. Forgive me if I say this, but criminality in our past. And I don't I don't know that it's like God can't use the faith of your wife. Certainly, you know he does. But it's, it's neat how God lets the the freshman team play varsity sometimes. You know. And Pastor Jordan Hodges, you're going to love this guy. He is, he's a pioneer. He's a, he's a force to be reckoned with, and he's going to be shucking the corn next week. And uh, after that, we'll get back to kind of a normal schedule. So we have four weeks of getting ready, getting our hearts and our minds ready to receive the teaching over the next eight weeks 
that is going to be about, this is Genesis, these are the Proverbs and Psalms, the poetic books, the minor prophets, the New Testament, the book of Acts, the book of Romans, etc. Pauline epistles, the book of Revelation. So we're on our journey. How many of you guys are doing good so far? You doing all right? I'm sorry, we have a professor. How many of you guys are doing well so far? Doing better. All right. So Father, I pray your blessings on our hearts and our minds. God, I love, I love what JP said. The, the mind that's full of truth is a good thing, but the heart that's that's known or revealed Jesus will never, someone who has a testimony will never be at the mercy of someone with an argument. People are going to argue there's no such thing as a Dino Weekend, but I know Dino Weekend. And I pray that you'd fill our hearts with the knowledge of Christ. Let us know how deep and wide and tall and high is the love of, of God that's in Christ Jesus. Let us know you. And as we know you more, God, it's funny how questions and answers, it's, I don't know. I, I, I like that you're the answer to every question. And I pray that you would give us answers for those that need more than that. Help us to study, show ourselves approved, workmen who don't need to be ashamed, who can correctly handle this, this word, this sword. And I thank you, God, for the seeds planted today and, and the miracles that have been done. Have your way with us, God, we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Altar workers are coming forward. If you need prayer for anything at all, they'd love to pray for you. If not, live long, prosper. We will see you again real soon. God bless you.